jump into it like we do every week. Welcome to another episode of the Bladeology podcast. We are catching up this week with the part two of the Nate Clark interview. Jumping in on Y2K in the second part of the knife making century. We were Y2K, right? All right. Yeah, Y2K. Y2K, and what can I say? While everyone mm-hmm. was freaking out, I was grinding away. <laughs> there we go. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> I was like a uh, a wee child, but I don't really remember. Apparently, people yeah, it was were just a big losing deal their guy. Shit. Everyone thought the world was gonna end. They were. Yeah. I was I was worried, but I was gonna build some knives. That's all I knew. And as long as the power was on. So I, I mean, I really was grinding away in Y2K, um, just, you know, self-employed, trying to keep my apprentice busy, training him up. Um, and he didn't have quite as much drive as I did. Um, didn't have as much, uh, you know, responsibility and so all that, so to speak. So, um, but I, between him and I, we built 61 custom knives that year. I worked 1700 hours and made $30,000. And I, I knew, I knew at that point I made that right decision when I graduated high school. Cause here I am being successful. Um, in 2001, um, my dad had a, my dad was an incredible artist. He could draw. I I used I remember as a kid being, Dad, draw me a picture of two guys fighting with spears. And he'd sit down and just start drawing spears. Yeah. Oh, I I have this thing for spears. I don't know. I was just like I was a little caveman kid. Um and he would sit down and 15 minutes later he would have this i mean incredible drawing muscle definition um facial expressions um like you know he uh he had a book collection of like you know a lot of uh conan the barbarian type stuff isaac asimov and the the cover art of all these books was something that you know i really like just poured over i read a lot of books as a kid, a lot of fantasy stuff, um, Forgotten Realms and Dragon Lance, um, just totally into that. Um, and so in 2001, he had expressed interest in learning how to engrave. He had uh, come to a few knife shows, met Jerry Whitmore, who was a local engraver, lived in Rice Valley, Oregon, which was pretty much right across the valley from Red Hill, Oregon, where the Ballatons were um was at the knife show every year with his engraving stuff and uh i picked up an old ball vice and engraver from jerry whitmore and gave it to my dad and um we uh collaborated on the first knife together my dad and i and um he engraved a knife that had a dragon on either side kind of a sunburst design behind the dragon's head and we sold that knife at the eugene knife show um, Oregon Knife Collectors Association show for $1,600. And it was stainless steel. It was one of my MFK designs, stainless steel blades, stainless steel handles with his engraving on it. And um, that show, 
I had my own table that show. Um, I was actually, I think I was, it was like Valentin table, Valentin table and me. Um, and, uh, I sold $10,000 worth of knives in that weekend okay. alone. So successful immediately. That's good. And, <laughs> uh, I was, and you know, it was, it was just, it was one of those that was probably quite possibly the uh, highlight of my career um, for quite a long time. I mean, it was, uh, I'm, I'm still proud. I, I remember that weekend and it was, it was exhilarating to do that. And it was something that I had started prepping for probably 45 days prior to the show, created a, uh, you know, this is what I'm going to make and started cutting parts and started working away at it, you know, on top of, you know, finishing and selling a few pieces each week to, you know, pay the bills and whatnot. And, um, you know, just put together a good display of knives for that show. And I think I sold every single one. Um, so it was very gratifying. And, um, of course, selling the first knife with my dad, I think I paid him $800 for his work out of that knife. And, um, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was a cool thing. Um, so in 2001, I built 72 custom knives, worked 1800 hours, made $44,500. And, uh, I was doing good, doing great. Yeah. You know, I had talked to, um, I had talked to Diskin about um, the fellow you had mentioned, who I'm now forgetting his name, but who wrote those articles in Tactical Life Chuck Magazine. Carwan. Yes, Chuck. Yeah, yeah. And I was talking to him about that, and I need to I need to get him back on to speak about that. But I remember that being the way he was saying it was that um, he was kind of like a tastemaker of the time. Like if if you were anybody who was anybody, like if you were lucky enough, you would have an article in tactical knife with him about about your autos and there weren't that many at the time who who he would feature um so i remember him him mentioning how important that was and how much of a critical turning point that 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 could be 12 articles a year so it's 12 lucky people and um he was you know oregon based uh he lived out on uh the unqua river out by uh tai area and um beautiful area um rainy ended, rainy ended up buying a house out that way and um one of my favorite places to go fishing on the umquas the the tai area and um you know uh chuck Arm was a writer he was a gun enthusiast knife enthusiast um probably had his hands in all kinds of things i didn't know about um you know as as being a young kid and you know rubbing elbows with him a couple times a year at the Valentin shop. Um, you know, which, you know, during this point after, um, stepping away from rainy, I, I still visited the shop. I used their surface grinder for many years until, you know, I developed my own process for surface grinding my material down to the proper thickness and such. Um, you know, so I was, uh, was involved and, and, you know, still, you know, friendly and visiting and and uh you know i'd show up and use their surface grinder and clean their grinding room on my way out you know and you know just kind of still trying to show that that respect and appreciation and um you know they're like you bring your own belts and and you know you come in after hours and you know no problem dude like you know do your thing and uh that's legit you know, so there pretty, was no resentment. pretty much made 
yeah, yeah, not not on either side. It was just you know I'd I'd made my decision, and you know they they were happy to see me successful. Um. So, um, but uh, yeah, that uh, why year two thousand, year two thousand one, I really felt I was feeling the success of making that decision to move out on my own and go my own way, um, and uh, you know, still running in the same circles as the Balatins, shared customers, um, you know, people that I had met through them, um you know, new players in the field, you know, I was kind of a spinoff of the Balaton. So of course they were, you know, looking at my knives as, as good investment, um, product. And, um, so, um, in 2002, I was still working out of Rice Valley, um, where I was renting that shop with a loft above. Um, I had done several more engraved knives with my dad. Um, added several more new designs to my repertoire, um, was keeping my apprentice Vincent Moore busy. Um, and, uh, probably 2002, probably one of the most in, in retrospect, probably one of the most, uh, important factors, uh, things that happened was I, I traded a knife for a gun bluing kit, like, you know, a big tanks, propane burners gun blowing like you can do full rifles and such in it um but up to that point i was you know if i'd used damascus it was like you know etch it and you know nitro blue or cold steel blue it to bring out the the contrast um and or you know if it was uh um like a high carbon mix it was just a nitro blue which is kind of like a a rub on chemical reaction to the surface kind of thing to bring out the contrast and the colors between the steel. Um, but gun bluing, gun bluing is a whole different level. Um, I used to be fascinated in that. Uh, when I first got into like starting to design and like produce knife stuff, like for some reason I was like fat, infatuated with bluing. I don't know. It's, it's Can you describe uh, the process. Like, so, um, gun bluing, is heat and salts so what you're doing is in essence you are rusting your material in a controlled environment um but it actually creates a protective surface so um when when you say gun blowing it's like if you buy a pistol or a rifle that has a black blued finish it's gun blued um and um Whereas like nitro bluing um, was more of a, a thin, very, very top surface. Um, and, and over time of just handling your knife that's nitro blued, it can rub away um, and sort of disappear in the high contact points. Um, gun bluing is much deeper. It goes much deeper into the steel um, and you get a different look. And I remember the first time I saw a gun blue knife, I'm pretty sure it was on a, on J a Harkins table at the Eugene knife show. And I'm like, how is he getting that steel? So incredibly black and with that nickel contrast, that bright nickel contrast. And, and I remember asking him and he said, I'll never tell you. <laughs> 
And okay, that's a challenge. That's a challenge. All right. So um, I figured it out that it was gun bluing and I did my own research into gun bluing and it was really a um, uh, trial and error process in the beginning, you know, um, gun bluing calls for, if I remember correctly, I've been kind of out of the game for a few years, but um, heating up your bluing salts to 294 degrees and you get the black. Well, I had seen many other makers, they got the black contrast. And then I started, you know, the more I looked into it, I'm like, well, what this guy's getting blues and purples in his, like, how is he doing that? So I started playing with the variances um, and found out that, well, if you lower your temperatures a little bit, you know, like maybe instead of 294, you're dropping down to 275 or 280, you're getting a different colors coming out, much like anodizing titanium and having a variac to change your electrical currents to get your different colors. So trial and error, I just started practicing. And one thing I learned, you don't want to use the big rifle barrel tanks, which are about three and a half feet long, because a bucket of gun blue salts at that time was 150 bucks. Plus it was a caustic material so you had to pay about $40 for shipping and used about a quarter of the bucket per round and you could reuse that round three four times and it was pretty expensive so I streamlined the process of course I'm making folders so I'm thinking all I need is is a container that's like you know uh, you know six inches by a foot and I'm going to use a lot less of these materials and then Next thing, you know, I know I'm like, well, what is this bluing salts made out of? Huh? Let's look into that. And then I started buying two different ingredients off of eBay and mixing them together and um, making my own bluing salts. And because I'm buying two separate products that aren't mixed together, they're not caustic by themselves. I'm not paying shipping. It ended up being a tenth the cost and um you know reducing the size of the bucket I, I dialed that process in real nice um so 2002 was the year i learned how to gun blue damascus um i used a lot more damascus a lot more high-end handle materials um fossilized ivories um preban ivories pearls abalone um and started moving into like this higher end art knife category um, where my average knife price went from the three to $600 range to the six to $1,000 range. Um, stepping it up. And stepping it up, stepping it up. Yep. Um, basically, you know, trying to climb the ladder in the knife making world, so to speak, and, and emulate some of the art knives that I admired, um, you know, from other makers and find my way along. Um, you know, I was to the point where I'd, I'd been taught the basics and, and what, what and how to do in the process. Uh, but I was trying to find my own niche. Um, you know, obviously at the same time trying to make more money, and you know move into you know hopefully in the direction of you know i uh, the 
the range of being able to build knives that were worth more than a thousand dollars and um you know trying to figure out how these guys out there were making knives that they were selling for five thousand dollars um that's the trick obviously that's the trick mm -hmm. yes that's the that's trick it. because well then i can go from making 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 10 knives a month to making two knives a month and go. be making twice as much money that's 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 the trick so um so 2002 was an exciting year in that aspect but it was also a pretty sad year because in april um my dad passed away of a heart attack um the day after the knife show in eugene actually and um so my life kind of changed um knife making wasn't wasn't a focus for a while um although i was still doing it that was my living but you know, my heart wasn't in it um yeah but your, so, your dad did get to see all of the all of the high points and, and be part he of did it, which is which is pretty he really legit. He, he really did and it was that was very it it was uh that was the takeaway was he was able to see his offspring be successful and happy and quite honestly do something that he had you know my my father had aspired to be self-employed um his entire life but never really quite got there actually until the very end he did he did end up um starting a business um creating a rural garbage collection route um around Venita um Oregon which is the outskirts of Eugene um in a place where the um there was nobody doing a garbage collection route and that was in uh, Lane County which Lane County charged you an arm and a leg at the dump to drop your stuff off so he from the ground up started a route um with 10 customers and worked it up to um i think he ended up having 160 customers and in the end he ended up selling that business and that route to santa pack which is now the big garbage collection company of of lane county um and basically retired off of that sale um and that's that's kind of kind of when he began having the time to engrave and and do some stuff with me and he was developing his property and putting in a new house and different things like that so you know he he got to kind of kind of capitalize on his dream towards the end but um and then you know see the success that i was having and um you know that was it was very satisfying in that but you know obviously i wish that you know he was still around um and that we were still building knives together that would be ultimately my goal was for us to have a shop together and be building knives together or me building knives and him engraving what, wherever he wanted to fit into that scenario. But, um, so I, I am thankful for at least having that, uh, that experience of doing some stuff with him. And, um, those knives that we worked on together are quite rare. We didn't do a lot of them, but, um, they're out there and they're interesting for sure. Um, I think there might be a couple on Arizona custom knives that, uh, got put there for consignment and somewhere I've got pictures of all of them. Um, so, but, uh, probably, uh, mid 2002, I mean, 
somewhat because of my father's passing somewhat because my the the business i received off that article written by chuck carwan which really put me put me in orders for almost two years um because kind of petering out you know my knife sales were kind of dropping off a bit um my advertising was minimal um and so i kind of had a transition in my business where i was doing less custom retail orders and i started reaching out to knife purveyors and dealers um consigning more knives on websites um talked about arizona custom knives um jay and karen sato were the original owners of that business and um I was doing more business with them consignment wise, um, just building a spec knife and sending it out to them to photograph and, and, uh, put away in their safe and put up on their site. Um, I made contact with a fellow named Marty Miller, did a lot of business with him. Rob Blanton did business with him. Um, but ultimately in 2002, I built 51 knives, only worked about 1500 hours still managed to pull in 29,000. So still all in all a successful year, but, um, definitely a drop off from the two previous years. Um, you know, but life events happening, you know, still did pretty well. Yeah. Life tends to happen um, when, when knives are being made either way. Yep. So that brings us to 2003, which I've dubbed the year of the knife dealers. Ah, oh boy. Um, Dan Feldstein, Marty Miller, Rob Blanton, Don Guild, Arizona Custom Knives, at this time now purchased by Julie Hyman, um, Chet Cantar, James Owens. These were all guys that basically kept me going, kept my knife shop doors open, buying, buying my knives and, um, uh, you know, kept me working as a knife maker where I think I may, may have made a different choice and, and gone a different route had, had that not been the case. So, um, and I did end up receiving a little bit of inheritance at the end of that years. My mom had sold the property and hooked me up and I kind of retired for a bit, took a mental break. Um, but I still built 66 knives in 2003 worked quite a bit less with about 1300 hours and made $29,000. So still, still a self-employed full-time knife maker. Um, in 2004, I moved my shop into my home in Yonkala. Um, first, my first home purchase by a fixer upper was going to be a, uh, a house flipper in addition to being a knife maker. Um, at this point, I was using Damascus and ivories and pearls all the time. Um, my first apprentice, Vincent Moore, moved on um, as I'd kind of moved out of his old man's place, um, renting that shop. Uh, he, he, he took a Y on the road going another way. And I met my second apprentice, Darren Russell, who happened to be my neighbor in Yonkala at the time. Um, Another highlight in my career in 2004 was I made my first knives with Jerry Rados Damascus. Oh, there we go. I, I had always admired Jerry Rados Damascus. It was unique. It was sought after. And, um, at that point I, I had made the decision to reach out to him and see what I, 
was going to take to get some steel out of them. Nice. <clears throat> Which, to be fair, right, so, and a little bit of background there, but uh, some of this stuff used to be a lot harder to get. Which, which we mentioned when talking to people. It wasn't always just, you know, bring up the website, order it, that's it. it there was a little bit of uh, extra legwork involved. I think at that time when Jerry, there was probably a pretty good demand and he was building his own stuff with his own steel. Um, and I think it was kind of like you had to be somebody for him to hook you up. Right, right. <laughs> yep. So... Um, and the interesting stuff about Jerry Rados, unlike anybody else's steel that I had come across, you know, like I used a lot of Devin Thomas and Chad Nichols. Um, Jerry Rados would be, okay, you want some steel from me? Send me a template. And he forged his steel to shape. So the pattern of the Damascus didn't disappear off the edges of your blade it followed in on the edges to the tip, which was, you know, as far as I was concerned at the time, was unique. It's pretty insane. I, I don't really know anyone else that does that even to this day. Yes. Yeah. Neither do I. Radio's so, is a bullet um, thing. That's like some different stuff. <laughs> it, it definitely is. Um, and it... I did it justice as best as I, you know, could. I, I built some beautiful knives out of his steel. Um, in uh, probably in August of 2004, my production ramped up a little bit. I started getting back into it a bit. Um, probably ran out of inheritance money. <laughs> um, and... Uh, Oh, let's see. Some other highlights in 2004 is I, I ended up selling that house, that investment house that I had um, and uh, was kind of kicking around looking for a place to put my knife shop. And it just so happened that my apprentice, um, his place had an old hay barn on it. So we converted that into a knife shop. And uh, um, I think uh, well, it was December 15th of 2004 that knife shop was all set up and ready to go. And it was uh, at my apprentice's house. So of course I, I had somebody right there ready and willing to work whenever I wanted to show up. So in the end, it wasn't a bad year, but still um, I made 57 knives, worked about 1,575 hours and took home $20,000 from the knife business. Um, so uh, a bit of a dip, but it, you know, it, it was a one of those years where life kicked me down and it was a transitional you know, with the punches. Yeah, it certainly was. It was a transitional. But, um, you know, in 2005, of course, I uh, um, I had an apprentice and this guy was a go getter. He was a fast learner. Um, it was at a point in his life where he was really looking for something to do, too. And like me, he was enthralled with the knives. And, um, so, uh, and the other thing about him is he had a real keen, a keen mind and he has a way of, of, uh, pushing me, pushing my limits, getting me to come out of my comfort zone. Um, and at the same time, you know, I was using, you know, like I had got into that Jerry Rados, 
um, steel and kind of challenging myself to move into this higher art knife market. Um, that was the year um, in February. I made a um, landmark knife, which I dubbed Mother Turkish, which was an MFK design with custom forged Jerry Rados Damascus. Um, and it was uh, rather than the traditional bolster and handle, I did a full Jerry Rados Damascus handle and I milled windows in it and pockets behind those windows and inlaid pearl back in behind it. And the front window and the knife was a floating inlay and also the button for the double action auto. So hmm. it, in essence, it was a window release. Wow, okay. So you couldn't tell it was a switchblade. Right. It had a thumb stud in it, it was double action, but it had a window release button. Um, and that was the beginning of a new evolution in the Nate Clark knives. Um, <clears throat> so it was also 2005 was the year that I designed, um, a knife I called the cutter, which was an AutoCAD design. I didn't start the drawing on paper or anything. I started it in AutoCAD. Um, and it was, uh, it was basically my first attempt at making a production style knife. Um, the idea behind it was a stainless steel blade, full titanium handle, and I had a water jet cut tab in the middle of the handle. It's about the size of your thumb. And the idea behind that was get the parts water jet cut and mill out that tab and relieve it enough to where it was like a diving board. And that was your button to push down on the sear to release the spring and kick the blade out. So um, it was supposed to be a big hit. I had 25 of them cut and I think I sold about 20 of them. Probably still have some parts kicking around. Wasn't quite as popular in the market as I had hoped. Um, but it was a cool knife and it was a great attempt. And it was me doing my effort of doing the AutoCAD production run knife. Um, something that I had hoped that, you know, my apprentice could do 100% of the work or 95% of the work. And I could, you know, profit from from uh, somebody else's labor and, and so on and so forth. Um, and... Uh, that was also the year that I did a bit of traveling, went back east and visited my mom and my brother. They lived on the East Coast. And um, one of those trips on the way home, I uh, flew in through Atlanta, Georgia and attended the Atlanta Blade Show. Um, didn't have a table, just kind of flew in, enjoyed the show. The Valentins were there. So there's some people that I you know knew um, met some people I'd done business with, but never, you know, I'd met in person and, um, kind of, uh, you know, getting a taste for it, getting a feel for it. Um, and definitely want to go back one day when I'm fully prepared and get a table and, and do some business there. So was that your first, was that your first blade show? That was my first and only blade show okay. in 2005. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I wasn't a big traveler. I don't really enjoy traveling outside of my little circle of world over here in, in the Eugene, Oregon, Douglas Lane County area. I figured um, you would go to Blade know. Show. Um, most most guys seem to like always make it a, a 
like a, a big deal. Well, we got Blade Show West I, now. I would. So that's cool. Yeah, yeah, which I have yet to attend. Um, you know, I think uh, when Blade Show West started becoming a thing, I was kind of falling out of the knife thing a bit. Um, and uh, or maybe I just wasn't really focused on it. Um, but 2005, we're kind of coming to a time in the knife world, at least for me, where um, I was. I was thinking about some other things in life, um, looking for some experience in um, construction, um, remodeling homes. Um, I had bought and sold my first first home, um, made a cool twenty thousand dollar profit, and but I also learned that I didn't know nearly enough to really be doing that, really yet. <laughs> Um, Sometimes you just kind of fall so, into things like that, you know? Yeah. Well, in September of 2005, I started picking up some part-time work for a construction company. Um, you know, make money and get paid to learn. I'm always about getting paid to learn. Um, and um, I had, you know, 20 grand sitting in the bank. I was thinking about reinvesting it in the house, but, you know, life just kind of, change that for me. I ended up kind of supplementing my income for a couple of years with that money and starting to focus on a few other things. I was still making knives. I was working a little bit in construction, partying a lot. Um, and, um, but I was kind of in sort of a, sort of a transitional, what do I, do I want to keep making knives as a primary income for the rest of my life? Um, do I want to do that as, as, you know, something that's a little bit, um, one of my sources of income and, you know, thinking about this whole house flipping kind of business plan. Um, well, cause at this point you've and, been doing knives for more than a decade, right? Like straight, like knife making. Um, just about, yeah, pretty much. Cause it was 95 when I was really starting to learn how to make knives and I've been doing this for 10 years and, you know, so it's, you know, it's, it's definitely 10 years doing the same thing. And sometimes you're like, hmm, hmm, you know, I want to keep doing this for another 10 years. Um, even though I love doing it and I, I've never imagined, I never imagined I would take five years off from it, but, um, you know, after 10 years, you start to think, you know, maybe there's something else. Um, and I figured it, knife making is cool and I definitely want to keep doing it, but, um, I'm, I'm never going to make a million dollars a year doing this. So, um, you know, what else is there going on out there that, uh, might, you know, instead of making thousands of dollars a month, I can make tens of thousands of dollars in a month or whatever, you know? And, um, the real estate market was calling to me. Um, so I felt like I need more experience. So I was, uh, taking the time to step out, get a job, learn, learn about houses. And I was working for a company that was remodeling old houses from the foundation to the roof. Um, and I ended up, um, I mean, it, I worked part-time for them off and on work knives part-time, full-time off and on for the next few years, but ended up working into a full-time position. But at the same time I was, uh, meeting new dealers, um, 
in 2005, started doing business with a fellow named Keith Newman, um, met a guy named Jeff Kerwin, um, another fellow named Bob Glassman. Um, and you know, I was, uh, still consigning knives with Arizona custom knives, um, doing more and more of the high end builds using the Damascus bluing, um, starting to experiment with, you know, buying Damascus from, you know, off brand Damascus makers, um, learning how to squeeze more profit out of my business by spending less money on materials, being more efficient in building the knives. Um, and so, you know, 2005 was, was definitely a kind of a interesting year for me where I was playing with different ideas and trying out different things. Um, and, you know, exploring new avenues, but I, I made 53 knives that year, um, and only worked 864 hours to do it. Mind you, my apprentice was doing a lot of the work too. So he probably worked 800 to a thousand hours that year. So honestly, there was, there was full time work, you know, a full year's worth of work going on in my knife shop. I was just doing half of it. Um, but, uh, actually it was financially almost my best year. I made $48,000, um, between the sale of the house and the knife thing and working construction. And, you know, I was, I was super busy, but, um, did really well. Um, so, um, 2006, um, again, part-time construction, part-time knife making, kind of living off my proceeds a little bit from the sale of that house and, um, having fun with life. Um, I started dabbling in customizing pistols. Um, I was doing like, you know, buying old guns or beat up guns and I'd pull the slide out and the trigger off and the handles off and I'd file work it and, um, re gun blew it or polish it out and do a mixture of gun blue polish. And, um, you know, just kind of, you know, playing around with, with that, um, in addition to, to building knives, but, um, I only built 26 knives in 2006, worked about 800 hours and, made $15,000 on knives, um, $8,000 working construction. So kind of really had a mix of stuff that I was, I was doing. Um, um, but not super focused on, on any one thing in particular. Um, but at that point when I was really, really starting to get into the meat of the construction side of things. Um, and in 2007, I slowly transitioned into full-time work for this, um, construction company called, uh, REC construction. And it was owned by a guy out of Cottage Grove named Rick Brammer. And, uh, he was, you know, he's about my age at the time. Um, we had three other guys working on the crew and, um, we probably remodeled, oh, eight to 10 houses a year. Um, and I mean, everything from leveling foundations to gutting houses and having, you know, like we would, we would gut the houses and the electricians and plumbers would come in and do their thing. And then we'd remodel it back up and replacing floors and fixtures and, you know, redoing windows and roofs and decks and everything. 
So I was learning every aspect of the, of the uh, home remodeling business. Um, and I loved it. I mean, there's nothing like getting a demo of a house out. It is fun. <laughs> Get some big sledgehammers, start shit. kicking holes in the walls. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like, where's the dry rod at? We're going to find it. Last time I did a demo, well, instead of, before we started knocking shit down, we got a bunch of hockey bucks, and we just started taking nice shots at the wall. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, Funny how destruction um, is the so fun. I was yeah yeah it absolutely is and then and then the hard work starts um <laughs> but uh so in 2007 i pretty much transitioned to where i was working 35 40 hours a week in construction but i was dedicated to my knife business um i've often referred to nate clark knives as my firstborn child um so even though i was working full-time i was still spending two nights a week and two days on most weekends in the knife shop, putting in 20 or 30 hours a week on top of a full-time job. But for me, making knives wasn't work. It was just what I like to do. I, at this point, my apprentice, uh, Darren Russell, was um, full speed. He knew what he was doing. Um, pushed me to new levels um, and was a huge asset to the business. And um, so my goal um, was to spend 20, 30 hours a week in the shop, which wasn't really work for me because I love doing what I was doing. I love making knives. Um, and so my goal was to, uh, with my time in the shop, even though limited was to keep him busy while I wasn't there. Um, and so pretty much we were you know able to uh continue our production of you know five to ten knives a month depending on the level of knives that we were building um and um uh but at the same time in 2007 um and probably part of what led me to choose the full-time um, job of construction was I was starting to feel sort of like a decline in sales. Um, and well-established at the time, social media was definitely a well-used tool. Um, and you know, I, I was well-known at this point in my opinion. Um, but what really set the tone for me, was the, Oregon Knife Collecting Association Eugene Knife Show in April was not a good show for the first time. The Eugene um, Show. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you know, just a, a decline in people showing up or, or do you mean yeah, o- overall it was, like it was people were spending less? Um, there was less people coming in from out of state for sure. Um, and part of that might have to do with the internet being more prolific and people not having to jump on an airplane to come out and buy those knives. Um, knife makers not having to spend $500 on a table to sell those knives. Um, and part of it might've been the economy. Um, I don't know, um, I don't know how much you guys 
were aware in 2008. A great deal. Um, but there was an economic recession. Yeah. And Just a as one. a <laughs> investment grade knife maker, guess what? It's like the first thing to go. First thing to go. Yes, yes. Nobody's the nobody's got you, the thing that you don't need is the fancy blue knife with pearls. Those that's yes. Not I mean, I would have been really successful if I was selling toilet paper in two thousand eight, you know? but not selling knives. Right. Yeah. <laughs> One of those. So things. it was toilet paper um, selling out like like COVID times as well. Oh no, it wasn't selling out like COVID times. Oh my gosh, no. no but no. um, yeah. Oh, no, um, so young, you doesn't even realize. You're two years older than me, guy. I remember shopping in 2008. I was fucking 12. All right. right. Well, I I felt that economic recession. Um, I think I I remember like in a matter of months going from making $2,400 a month to making $1,200 a month off my knives and um, thinking, wow, I'm really glad that I'm, you know, I'm doing this other thing um, because I can weather this. Um, yeah, have that backup, right? Yeah, yeah. Multiple streams of income. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so you know, pretty much, uh, you know, even in the, even in the construction side of things, though, I was laid off in December in two thousand seven from that job. Got my first unemployment check ever in my life, um, and uh, still going into two thousand eight. You know, I was laid off at the year's beginning. I tried ramping up the knife thing while I was laid off. Um, I had my knives on the, or my eyes on the April show in 2008 in Eugene. Um, but again, it was, it was a flop. I think I turned, showed up with 12 knives and sold one. And um, at that time, my, my brother who lived in Springfield, Massachusetts and was, uh, had his own business as a residential and commercial painter. He'd been trying to talk me into coming over there and going to work for him for years. Um, and so here I am spending half of my time laid off from my construction job, having a hard time selling knives. <clears throat> it's 2008. Um, I decided to take my brother up on that offer and, um, moved back East. And, um, so I pretty much, I made some calls the day after the knife show and I sold as many knives as I could over the phone, sent the rest to Arizona custom knives, put it on consignment, figured money in the bank with the savings account right there. Um, and, uh, borrowed a little bit of money from my mom and packed things up and moved back East and went to back, went to work for my brother. Um, and, uh, I spent the next six months working back there with my brother and uh, he's got a company called Masterpiece Finishes and he, uh, much like myself, aspires to do high-end custom stuff and I enjoyed his level of work and attention to detail and getting a very uh, focused education on the painting part of um, home improvement. So that's, that's all finished work then, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It, it's, uh, it, <laughs> well, uh, painting commercially back East is a lot different than painting commercially or commercially and residentially over here on the West coast. Um, primarily because there's a lot of 
two and three story homes. So I was used to going 12 feet up a ladder. <laughs> and then I go to work for my brother and he's like, go pull that 40 foot ladder off the truck and climb up there and go, you know, sand off that gable and paint it. I'm like, dude, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Don't you want to rent a lift? He's like, nah, I don't rent lifts. That costs too much money. Cuts into the profit. So uh, it was quite the experience. But needless mm-hmm. to say, I, I kind of conquered my fear of heights over there. Sure. How long um, were you in Springfield for? I was. Uh, I lived in Three Rivers for oh, shit, six okay. months. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, um, what is the name of that uh, titanium outlet? I yeah. lived like TR- yeah. <laughs> three blocks down the road from a place I've been caught buying titanium from for years. It was yep. pretty cool. They actually, they, they recently just changed their name to three rivers manufacturing. Did they? Oh, yeah. Nice. Oh, that's where they are. I didn't know. Yeah. That. Interesting. Three rivers manufacturing, um, is like a five minute drive from like one of my favorite, um, swimming spots. It's yeah. like, yeah. Uh, huh. so it's, if the river that, meant that, the valley, awesome. then a PVK, that swimming spot must yeah. be the, uh, the intersection in three rivers during a, a thunderstorm. That's exactly right. Yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I lived a, practically within stone's throw of that intersection. And man, the first thunderstorm, I was like, Oh my God, I should have built Noah's fl- Ark. Yeah, this is going to flood. Yeah. Halp- Halpern titanium. Yep. Halpern titanium. Yes. Yeah, so that's it. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it was, it was kind of a, you know, an interesting experience to be right there. And I, you know, um, was like, oh, I gotta go buy me some titanium in person today, just for the heck of it. Yeah, right. Just for the heck of it. I wasn't building knives over there. I had left my entire knife shop back here in Oregon. I was hoping my apprentice was gonna do some stuff and give me a royalty check, but that didn't work out quite as well as I hoped. He built a few knives, but I think he ended up working for a painting company that summer over here locally. So, mm-hmm. um, that's how it goes. But anyways, it was, uh, I was there for six months, almost mm. to the day, um, you know, worked the, worked the traditional painting season over there, which is much shorter than it is over here. Yep. Um, and, uh, decided that, uh, I'm not an East coaster. <laughs> um, everything was backwards and upside down. I'm like, uh, I think I'm pointing North because the ocean's on my left side. Oh, no, I'm looking South and I never could get it right. It's a whole different so, thing. It's all right. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, so, and, uh, you know, my kids were here in Oregon and, and I, I didn't get to see them at all that summer. And it was like, yeah, I, I got to go back home. This isn't working out. So, um, but that was, so I was there until, uh, I want to say, I think it was mid October. Um, and then I came back to Oregon and, you know, just kind of started over again um worked a variety of construction jobs started building knives again in early 2009 um thought about going to college i even started um doing an online college looking for a degree i was uh thinking that i wanted to be an administrator in healthcare nursing home kind of thing because i done my market research and that was the most growing highest paid for you know but um, I ended up getting a job in the maintenance department at a nursing home in Springfield, Oregon, um, a couple months into college. And I dropped out because I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to work my way up the ladder. I'm not going to incur a big college debt when I, I'm reading the writing on the wall here and my boss is going to retire before long. 
And uh, I was right, he did. And um, so I started this job at um, Marquee Nursing and Rehab in Springfield, Oregon as a facilities maintenance assistant and continued to work, um, kind of got right back into the role of things with the knives, working two nights a week and on the weekends, my apprentice was still there. Um, painting season was over. He was ready to make knives. And we got right back into it. Um, I started uh, making connections with uh, some new knife purveyors. Um, AJ D. Bartolomeo. I could never say his name right. Um, and he kind of became a primary benefactor in 2009, 2010. I think I was building five knives a month for him alone. Um, and uh, um, working about you know, probably 20 hours a week, um, producing one to two knives a week on top of my day job. Um, and, you know, I was starting to have a little bit of fun with things. Um, we, my apprentice Darren and I got our hands on some video recording equipment. Um, and we started recording our knife making, like pick a knife and record it start to finish. Um, and chopping up our own videos and trying to, um, you know, get them online. Um, I was trying to up my customer service and I would do, um, in the making bench shots, you know, like every couple of days I'd take pictures of the knife that I'd be working on for a customer and I'd send them to them so they could, you know, see the progression of the knife and, um, made it my policy to do, uh, um, uh, proof of completion pictures. Um, so I, I'd finish a knife, um, and I'd take, you know, just, I started doing basically my own photography, finished photography, bought a, um, uh, photographic light box and got some good lights and picked up a good camera and was just, you know, kind of, kind of trying to streamline uh, even another aspect of the, the knife making process, um, instead of outsourcing those photographs of, of just the nice knives, I was trying to get photographic, um, you know, evidence of every knife, um, and just do it myself. Um, so, um, of course, uh, I don't know. I had some, uh, with the whole video thing, um, you know, we were like putting Pantera and Megadeth in there behind it. And then people weren't publishing it because I wasn't properly giving, giving, uh, you know, doing the whole, well, I can't think of the words right now, but sure. ASCAP and BMI want their cut, man. Yeah, All yeah, I, absolutely. And I'm like, you know, kind of kind of like, oh, what's going on here? They won't publish my videos. And yeah. <laughs> so, um, but uh, um, pretty much uh, like that was, you know, I started doing that, uh, working at working at Marquee and continuing knives. Um, 2010 flew by, um, I was having a good time and making knives, um, making good money again. Um, obviously not keeping good records cause I don't know how much I was making, but it was, you know, my primary job. I was 
I was doing good at, and the knife thing was, you know, get, get a knife check, it's a bonus. So, um, but I kind of started to move away from dealers at this point because I wanted a little bit more, um, I wanted to take control of what I was building and how I was building it. Um, uh, I was, Darren was inspiring me. He's kind of a design function nut, a lot like Butch is. Um, and he was pushing me and inspiring me to branch out into more scale releases, bolster releases, window knives. Um, I'm not so much of a, of a function guy. I like fit and finish design and color. That's, that's what I like. I like the art aspect of it. He likes the trick aspect of it. So together we're a pretty good team. Um, and he actually really ended up kind of taking over the whole function side of the knife. Um, he started doing a lot of the mill outs and the fitting and the design and, um, which just kind of left me free to do, you know, the finish work and putting the materials together. Like we're going to use this Damascus and this handle material and this, you know, anodize these color liners. And I'm going to use, I want to do this kind of file work here. And I started teaching myself how to set stones and, you know, just upping the ante, um, in addition to, you know, really moving into, um, a new, um, a new level on the function side of thing with Darren's help. Um, we, uh, we went away from the, the traditional button ramps, um, underneath to give the a return spring or return, um, to the button, um, and started doing, um, um, coil spring returns, which enabled us to pack our function into a much smaller little package in the knife. So I was able to place my button almost anywhere I wanted, which farther up towards the front of the knife up in the bolster is always better. Cause when you grab a knife, that's where your thumb naturally lands. Um, and you know, so we're just kind of fine tuning and, um, I mean, in my opinion, kind of finding a higher level of quality and usability and art all, all at the same time, um, which was really what I wanted. I, I, I didn't enjoy taking a custom order and building something to somebody else's specs and thoughts and ideas as much as I did doing it myself. And, um, because I already had a full-time job and had a regular paycheck, I wasn't dependent on making a sale. So I had the freedom of design and time and I could build a knife. It took as long as it took and I could do whatever I wanted. And when it was done, I could take pictures and try to sell it. And if it didn't, if I couldn't sell it through my venues, I consigned it to Arizona Custom Knives. Hmm. There you go, and, that works. And that's where it sat until it sold. And I thought, you know, eh, if it sits there for three months, oh, well, you know, it's fine. In three months, I'll get paid. Well, I found quickly that we were building a caliber of knives. Um, the high-end investment-grade art knives, they didn't take three months to sell. Um, this, uh, this, this 2011 was a year that we really started to move in that direction 
Um, I was looking for um, good quality but cheaper materials to build a knife out of so that I could increase our profit margin without having to increase our prices. So it kept our knives competitive. Um, so I was selling these high-end art knives for under a grand still, but making 90% profit um, instead of what I used to sell for a thousand dollars, I'd be making 60% profit back in the day. So I was spending so much on materials. Um, so we were just finding different ways, different designs, different things to do, um, streamlining our processes, getting them down quicker, faster, not repeating, you know, like I, when I start, first started building a knife, I would put it together and take it apart 50 times during the build of a knife. Towards the end here, in the last few years that we were really, you know, building knives for, I decided to take a break. I'd say five to ten times I'd take the knife apart, hmm. depending on the knife. Getting that efficiency down. Getting the efficiency down, cutting down the steps, cutting down, walking back and forth between the equipment and everything else. I mean, I was, I used to build a knife and Darren be like, what are you doing? You're like wasting your time. And every single thing we did, I'd write it down, write it down, write it down. I'd have three or four pages of steps that we took to build a knife. And then I'd go through it and I'd be like, oh, we took it apart here three times to do this, this, and this. And we could have just done all three of those things the first time we took it apart. And that would have saved us 25 minutes. And then the next time I'd build a knife, I'd go off the, you know, I'd rewrite that down and follow that process. And then I'd reassess it. And, and we went from making, it used to take me 35, 40 hours to build one knife. And in towards the end, I could build that same knife. We would build two knives in 25 hours. Hmm. There you go. Business management. Absolutely. And I didn't have to raise my prices, but I increased my profit. Um, Most people would. They'd so, be like, oh, well, I did this thing, so let me raise my price. Yeah. Yeah. For no I, reason. I, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to price myself out of sales and I didn't mm -hmm. want to price my knives out of my customers being able to attain one. Right. So I found a different way to do it. Hmm. And, um, you know, when I come back, I want to tell you right now, I'm going to increase my prices just because supply and demand five years off supply and demand tooling costs. Yeah, that's right. Tooling costs, shipping costs. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's gone up quite a bit. You've been out for five years, just in the last year and a half, everything's gone up quite a bit. Well, I mean, yeah, I've watched inflation, and I, I can't honestly jump back into the business and be doing what I was doing for the exact same price. I mean, I just really yeah. can't. So, um, the re-entry re into the market with some prices increase is totally reasonable. That's fine. Well, yeah, yeah, and it it really there was. Um, I had done in those later years, done so much business with dealers that were pushing me to make five, 10 knives a month that were all very similar. I've, I actually felt like I kind of flooded the market with all of these pretty similar knives that I was actually fighting when it went, to, when I, when it came for me to like put a knife in consignment, it's like, I was fighting my own supply of knives that were already out there on other dealers sites and on the tables at the shows and um, felt like that was a factor. So taking a break for me was 
you know, good for my health, but also a bonus because it gives time for those knives to kind of dissipate into the private collections where nobody's ever going to see them again. And then it's going to increase the demand on the market. And believe me, I felt it because I've had people reaching out to me through emails or calling me up out of the blue and going, Hey, can I get a knife? And I'd be like, Oh, I'm not really building right now. And they're like, all right, well put me on that list. When you start again, I <laughs> want a knife. List. And it's put like, me on it. yeah, you're on the list, buddy. But you know, I, I really don't have a list. Call me. If you're listening, call me here call in me. four months. Um, I'll call you in four months. Yeah. So, um, that kind of leads me to the years of 2012, 2013, 2014. Um, I call them the years of the one-of-kind knives, one-of-a-kind knives. Um, I was aspiring to try to, um, every once in a while, just knuckle down and build a knife that I pulled all the stops out on. Um for example, in 2013, I built a knife that I called Cosmic Mist. So this knife, I spent 80 hours. And granted, bear in mind that in 80 hours, I probably could have built five knives, all high end. And so I put all that time into one knife, made it worthy of actually naming it. Um, and it was a theme. The theme behind this knife was this. I wanted this knife to look like something I wanted to look like uh, um, when you looked at this knife and you thought of the name, you're like, okay, I get it. I actually didn't name the knife until after it was complete, but basically I did a bunch of um, circular window holes with black lip and gold lip and white mother pearl inlays behind them and a full Damascus handle all gun blued. And when you look at the knife, it gives you the impression of looking at a outer space scenery with planets and I inlaid stones in it, you know, planets and stars and suns. And, and so the name Cosmic Mist came to mind and I named that knife and um, it was one that I just I wanted to I wanted to immortalize it on the Internet. Um, so putting it on consignment with Arizona custom knives who takes a picture of every knife they sell or consign and leaves it up there forever. So I consigned it with them and I thought, yeah, well, I'm going to put a $2,999 price tag on this knife and I don't care if it takes six months to sell. 18 hours later, Arizona custom knives calls me up and says, your knife sold. Bam. Look at that, huh? Yep. Killing it. I'm like, okay, I think I found, I think I found the niche that I want to be in. I think I'm finally there. Um, in 2014, I made another knife that I consigned on Arizona custom knives. It was, uh, my 10 inch Bach design and I called it sword in the stones. And again, inlaid with a bunch of stones and had a sword like design in the middle of it. It was back laid um, with mother pearl and, you know, looked like a sword. Um, so theme knives, I like them. And that's what I aspire to do more and more of when I get back into it. Um, however, in 2014, I was thinking about getting back into it, but 
as I had read the writing on the wall with my uh, job at Marquis, the nursing home, uh, my boss retired and I was promoted to the maintenance director. Um, and this is when I was burning the candle at both ends. Uh, I was not being healthy. I wasn't eating regular. I wasn't eating the right stuff. I was drinking a lot of expensive dark beers cause I love them and I could. <laughs> and, um, you know, my lifestyle put me in the hospital. I, I had a, uh, basically I was, um, diagnosed with diverticulitis and my colon swelled up and almost exploded inside of me. And, um, I had to make some major changes. I had to cut something out of my life and slow down. Um, and you know, of course I had this new position and I had a nursing home full of people that needed me to do that job. And I felt like I was, you know, the one to do it. And I had to say, I got to put a pause on the knife making thing for a while. And, um, so that's what I did. And, you know, it's been six years going on close to seven, I think. And, um, I'm, I thought it was going to be a two year break, get my health under control. Um, you know, I was, I was approaching 300 pounds at the time. I'm weighing 220 now I'm healthy. Um, and you know, I, I did what I needed to do health wise. It's just been a matter of focusing back in, but you know, like I mentioned early on, I've got the shell of my shop. I've got all my tools here. I've got this design and I'm, you know, possibly three months away from having a functional running knife shop again. And that's my dream. And I hope that that's my Christmas present to myself and all of my knife making enthusiasts out there as well. So, um, seems like a great goal. Yeah. I mean, it seems like, the the knife making thing and everything that I've done over the years and actually sitting down and putting together this little outline and timeline of of my knife making career is uh, you know is really bringing it all back and and, and really um, feeding fanning the flames of that desire to get back into it um, it seems like a dream but it's it's a dream that I really want to get back to very soon. So, um, having said that, I, having said that, I, all I've got left to say is who's got questions. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, uh, I think so, so reentering the market in, in this particular time is probably, I'm going to say the best time and anyone yeah, listening would, would, think, would, would, would know exactly that. why yeah. I would be saying that. But I mean, this is. This is the, the best time. Wouldn't think that, right? This is the best time to do it because, so one of the reasons that that the that we that we do this podcast, and one of the reasons that you know I, I focus so so much on on guys who make or have made automatics, is because the same amount of guys who have made or do make automatics now are the same people and number that were doing it five or ten years ago. 
there's just not that many people doing it. So I mean, which means which means that interest. Yeah. Well, the thing is, we can turn around with this. No, I mean, there's lots of interest. There's an incredible amount of interest, but there's nobody building. What are you trying to say? (laughs) Yeah, no one's putting the idea on the steel. Well, no, yeah, exactly. So what I'm what I'm trying to say is that there's an incredible amount of interest from collectors and and nobody Mm -hmm. building. There's nobody there's nobody new entering the market who is building. So now is the best time. Yeah. Oh yeah. A lot of folks yep. consuming the image and not producing one. Right, exactly. So there's no yes. there's no new apprentices. There are no new automatic knife makers. Not really. I mean, there are people I know who are making automatics. That does not make them new people in the industry. That means that they are people who already existed, who decided to saw something interesting, and they're going to try to make an automatic. So, I mean, you're kind of joking about the four-month thing, but I mean, like, you know, I'll give you an order, you know, right now for knives if that's you know if that's what it is of interest but i I don't think it is at this moment so i mean i I definitely welcome you to to get back into it as soon as possible because oh yeah i got i gotta knock the rust off the tools i gotta knock the rust off of my skills i want to tell you right now i I gotta i gotta exercise these hands because oh my god my hands and my arms i used to be able to grab somebody's hand in a handshake and you know make them feel like their knuckles were breaking and now it's reverse <laughs> i mean it's, it's now it's, i got the wimpy handshake it's muscle so, memory at some point it'll yeah. build itself back it's, up. it's like riding a bike it'll come back but what what i'd like to do is is one you know feed my own imagination and um i'm gonna start with some simple stuff i i have a 11 year old son and i really would like to bring him out into the shop and say hey let's build a knife together and you know start with some sheath knives start with some folders work my way back up on the good stuff but i tell you i've got 12 bars of damascus sitting out there i'm pretty sure i got a bunch of nice handle materials sitting out there i i don't even know where it's at but i'll find it in the process of putting the shop back together I, I've got everything ready to go. I just need to get it set up and I need to get that hone, hone those skills back in a little bit. And you know, you're, you're, you're going to, you're going to hear from me. Um, or I'm going to hear from you because you're going to be like, Oh, there's some new stuff on Arizona custom knives. What the heck? Why didn't he call me? Um, <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, it's, it's, I don't know. Th- these are wild times we're living in, but I mean, you know, it's always when, when we go through people's um, registry of their career and these these timelines. I mean, it's really wild to to hear the the different paths that you take because it's like knife making is always there. It's just there's always um, a couple other things that are happening and you know, that's, that always ends up being important because like you said, whether or not it was, uh, at the forefront, I mean like the finished painting, the carpentry work, it's all a manifestation of the creation of something and the appreciation for doing like finite tasks really well. Yep. Yep. Starting with, uh, starting with a hunk of material or a pile of materials and finishing with a creation that you had pictured in your mind um, is, is very similar to the satisfaction that you, that I would get from beginning with an, a 1960s built home that 
was half rotted and tilted to the side and had holes in the roof and ending up, you know, working with the, the crew that I was working with, having a finished product of this home that was rentable and livable. Um, you know, there's the, there's the start and the finish and what you've done with your own hands and, and the pride that comes from that. Um, and, you know, but for me, nothing has been more satisfying than the knife thing, knife building, you know, like that is, that is, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there that can remodel a house and there's a much smaller group of folks that can take, um, some raw materials and envision a finished product and create a custom art double action switchblade that is, you know, mind blowing and coveted by many. Oh yeah. There's less than six of them currently. <laughs> like that's, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot of them at all. We got to come up with like a nickname for them. I think they Soon have to be seven then. Soon to be seven. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, that's really like outside, which is funny because like I've I've talked to people, as I'm sure we all have talked to people outside of the knife industry and you describe to them these things that exist, these 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 knives with springs in them. And you're like, yeah, it's like nobody does it anymore. And they're like, yeah, no, like I totally dig that. And you're like, no, 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 really nobody does it anymore. They're like, no, yeah, I get that. And I'm like, okay, forget it. Like nobody does this anymore. It's just one of those it's one of those Jedi trades that really just hasn't, um, the information hasn't been passed down. Like you said, the, the Valens were happy to pass it to you and you're happy to pass it to someone else. It's just, it's this weird. It's a pretty small circle though. Yeah. It's very small. Like it's extremely yes. small. And, um, and you know, the interesting thing, like I found in, in the later years when I was building regularly, I realized that I could build a folder and sell it for pretty much as much as I could build a switchblade mm. with and less work with less work. Another way that I made more profit, but I still, I was like, yeah, I want to do that. But like what I did, like, for example, with the sword and the stones, the sword and the stones was a 10 inch dagger that was double action. And I, I learned that I could build, you know, three, two or three knives at the same time. I'm doing the same process to each knife in, you know, in tandem. Therefore I'm being more uh, pro productive. I built sword in the stones, a high end, one of a kind custom double action switchblade. And at the same time I built two folders in my, um, in my other dagger design that were about nine inches long. And, um, sold all three at the same time i got uh i think retail 1900 out of sword in the stones off the arizona custom knives and 1200 a piece for the two folders so i'm i'm still like i can't stop building the switchblades because that's what i originally fell in love with way back in 1994 when i first saw rainy's fantail dnd &D and pushed that button and had that knife jump out of my hands like I mean, I got a rush of adrenaline off of that, and I'll never forget it. Switchblades have time, that. Yep. When when I hand over a knife to a guy who's never fired a custom automatic switchblade, and they fire that thing, like I can still see it in their eyes and on their face. That feeling that I had way back then. It's something special. It's that kind of, it's that 
symphony of clicks and sounds and motion. It's got something to do with actuating a trigger of some kind and a spring, then kicking something into place and then driving something. Yeah, it's like a mechanic. I don't know. You don't get that with any other Yeah, it's something that is... uh, You hit a button and action happens. Yep, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Makes a lot of noise. It's like when uh, someone like thought about the mechanics way more you know than like just the knife part yes yeah they, de- they decided to like i want to think about the mechanics which is mm-hmm. and then like how am i going to overcomplicate it and just to get this blade out <laughs> yep <laughs> well whoever thought of that was pretty cool you gotta add uh you gotta add the next step to it that's all yep very mm-hmm. cool um no i think it's uh yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I would usually, I would usually say something like it's tough to fit all the specifics into one episode, but um, you took notes and fit it all very concisely into one episode. So, uh, I, I would, I would say that that was a very, uh, very concise timeline. Well, um, thank you very much. And, I, and mean, I, I appreciate uh, that. Definitely. Uh, I do, I do like to be prepared. <laughs> you know, that's 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 good. That's absolutely you're you're there. Um, I I don't know. I I think I think I'm good. If it did, is there something we didn't go over that you would like to go over? Um, you know, at this time, I think uh, I think telling my story and um, sharing the progression and um, sharing my um my desire to be back to it and to um, be creating art again um, was my primary desire of what I wanted to do here. And um, as, as a um, looking at something from the other side, as a admire collector um, purveyor of custom knives, custom automatic knives, um, I, I'm am really hoping that um, you know that those people out there are um, finding a closer and better connection, you know, and understanding of uh, what goes into a knife and and why and how those things are made in in that on that level. Um, and you know that's 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 all I that's what I wanted to do was uh, create a connection with those people out there who um, look at my work and admire it, um, and so in the future when they call me up on the phone or reach out to me through email or text or whatever, um, they know who they're talking to, and um, the passion behind it and the reason behind what I'm doing and. Uh, why I took a break and why I want to come back and, and how I got here and, um, you know, the appreciation that I have for the Balatons who gave me this opportunity to, to be able to share, um, my internal creative, um, juices with the world out there. And, um, I appreciate you guys for giving me the platform and the venue to um, express that and to have that that message and my story out there and available. Um, and um, you know, again, this is <clears throat> this is one of those things. It's uh, you guys are gonna you guys are gonna put this out on the web and it's gonna be out there immortalized forever. And uh, you know, um, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing and hearing the feedback. 
Heck yeah, man. This is it's this is it. You're you're absolutely right. We've we've put this up and you've uh you've inscribed your your name and some dates in the stone and uh and now you've got a that's you know we're gonna check back with you in six months and uh and see what's clever um because that that's kind of the plan is to is to keep up with guys and 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 get the history and and have the have the podcast record some of that history and definitely to to keep tabs and see where people sort of progress to you know it's it's about the past timeline but it's also about you know the future timeline seeing seeing what seeing what happens afterwards well, I'm I for one am going to be doing my part in keeping the auto custom knife industry alive and kicking. Nice. And um, everyone out there, you're going to be seeing um, some more amazing work from me in the future. Killer man. Um, I I know for for one, I I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. It's gonna be it's gonna be pretty badass. I'll definitely be checking in soon. Hopefully, those uh, four months turn into two. And see what we crank out of that shop. There you go. Very awesome. All right. Well, uh, on that note, I want to uh, I want to thank everybody uh, out there in listener land for tuning in to another episode of the Bladeology podcast. Uh, we we've done it. It's episode forty one with with Nate Clark. I want to thank you so much. This is the vocal representation of. Jeremiah Burbank from PVK Vegas, and I'm signing off. This is Nick Chuprin of NCC Knives. I'm signing off. Elijah Isham of Isham Blade Works. Good night. Nate Clark, Nate Clark Knives from Drain, Oregon. 